0: Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Kristen Hayes. My guest today is Eric Nordman, professor of natural resources management and adjunct professor of economics at Grand Valley State University in Michigan, and an affiliate scholar at Indiana University's Ostrom Workshop. Nordman has written on a wide variety of environmental topics, from urban stormwater management and land preservation to renewable energy. His work has also appeared in mass market publications such as Quartz, The Conversation, and Bridge, which is a Michigan public affairs magazine. The topic of our discussion today is a book of Eric's published by Island Press in the summer of 2021 called The Uncommon Knowledge of Eleanor Ostrom, Essential Lessons for Collective Action. Many of our listeners will know that Eleanor Ostrom was a Nobel Prize winning political scientist who was recognized for her work on understanding the so-called commons, including how players could jointly manage shared resources outside of typical free market or regulatory structures. She showed that around the world, collective action is not only possible, but happening, and even thriving, and that can be fostered in ways that continue to be critically important today. Stay with us. Hi, Eric. Welcome to Resources Radio.
1: Hello. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Great. Well, it's very nice to be chatting with you today about your book. Uh, But before we dive into that, can I ask you to share a little bit more about you, about your background, about the type of research you do?
1: Sure. I've been a professor of natural resources management at GVSU since 2006, and I earned my graduate degrees at the SUNY College of Environmental Science and Forestry in Syracuse. I have a master's degree in forest ecology, and my PhD is in resource policy and economics, so I'm very interdisciplinary in the types of uh, research that I do and uh, the courses that I teach. Um, I teach courses in the social dimensions of resource management, including natural resource policy and environmental economics.
0: Wow. All right. Well, you cover a lot of territory, which is great. And I think that may give me a little bit of a clue to the next question I'm going to ask you. But um, you are clearly a fan of Eleanor Ostrom's. I'm assuming that's one of the reasons you chose to write a book about her. Uh, But how did you first decide to write a book that focused on her contributions?
1: That's a great question. Um, You know, I read Governing the Commons, her landmark 1990 book when I was a graduate student. And I've taught about Ostrom's work in many of my classes. Um, But it really wasn't until 2016 that I uh, had an idea for a project and was going to use some of Ostrom's ideas to study that. The project, unfortunately, wasn't funded. And then I had a sabbatical coming up. And I thought, well, what am I going to do next for my sabbatical? And I thought, you know, when I talk about this to my undergraduate students, I often have trouble finding a resource that's appropriate for them um you know ostrom herself wrote extensively uh she wrote many books and articles and collaborated with lots of folks um and other people have written great books about her but they're aimed at a more academic audience so i thought that maybe i could write a book that introduces ostrom's ideas to a broader audience inspires them and um You know, I could even bring that project that didn't get funded and make that into a chapter of the book. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. So you were very interested in her contributions, uh, but it seems like you were also interested in her life. And I guess I characterize it as the book is a bit sort of genre bending um, and is one of the back book cover quotes notes, the book is, quote, part biography and part theoretical exposition. So in other words, you know, readers learn a lot about Elnor Ostrom as a person, but they also learn a lot about the collective management of shared resources as a subject of kind of intellectual interest. So so why was it important to you to get both of those pieces in, um, you know, her her personal history and her academic pursuits? And, and how did they inform each other?
1: Sure. Well... I was really inspired in writing by uh, Elizabeth Colbert's work. Uh, She's written Under a White Sky and The Sixth Extinction and um, Field Notes from a Catastrophe. And I really like that approach where Colbert, as a journalist, you know, talked to scientists in the field who are experts in this. So I kind of wanted to tell the story of Ostrom's ideas from the perspective of the people in the communities that she studied, the farmers in Spain, the lobster harvesters in Maine, um, people that live in forest communities, um, so that's kind of like where the idea came from, and I think it it helps humanize the story. I think if you're just you know reading "Governing the Commons," um, which is you know a, a fantastic achievement um, in a landmark book, but you might get the sense that these ideas just dropped into her head. But they're really the culmination of 25 years of studying different resources, jumping from different topics, because she, you know, studied Los Angeles groundwater as a graduate student, but then was into municipal service provision and police studies. And then she comes back to natural resources. So, you know, in telling the the story of how this unfolds, you get a sense of her, you know, intellectual journey. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's really important, and I I I like that emphasis on um, the accumulation of knowledge across all of these different fields, which I think again you know reflects your own diverse interests here, and how that can actually lead to new insights in ways that maybe just staying in one lane your whole life doesn't, you know. So I I I really enjoyed personally the diversity of examples, and then also the the interweaving of a little bit of her life story, which was an interesting one. So
1: yeah. Her and her life story really is significant. You know, um, she was the first woman to win the Nobel Prize in economics in 2009. And uh, to some, this wasn't surprising at all. Ostrom was the co-founder of the Public Choice Society, and she collaborated with other Nobel laureates like economic historian Douglas North and game theorist uh, Reinhardt Um But to others, it really was a surprise like Paul Krugman. Another Nobel Prize-winning economist was pretty much unfamiliar with her work, but he did praise her for the award. But others were very dismissive and even insulting towards her.
0: Do you think that had to do with her gender? Was it the fact that she was the first female or was it about the body of work and it felt so different from what had been sort of singled out in the economics profession beforehand? I'm sorry, that's a very provocative question, but i no, it.
1: It's definitely... Um, I think it's a little bit of both ostrom was a political scientist not an economist and uh some folks you know definitely said and wrote on blogs and things that uh this is watering down the economics nobel it's just a generic social science you know so some economists were not real happy with that and then there, were, you know there is a level of misogyny i mean i think we can say that that um yeah and the irony is that ostrom was rejected from UCLA's graduate program in economics back in the late 1950s and was only reluctantly accepted into the political science program because they had not um political science hadn't had any female students in decades so they required them to uh bring in a cohort of of Ostrom and three other women hmm.
0: Yeah, you mentioned that in the book. That's a very an important piece of context too.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh she was
0: pioneering for a long time, that's for sure. So. Yes. Well, let's talk for a bit about the various chapters of the book that cover kind of different historical examples of collective action that either, I would say, informed or in some cases really embodied her research findings. And so maybe do you want to pick one of those or one or two of those to share with our listeners? Um, I was particularly drawn, as, as you note in the book, the idea of, quote, lobster gangs sounds particularly juicy. So feel free to tell us more about that one or, or any of the other kind of examples that you, you highlight in the book.
1: Sure, Ostrom, in governing the commons, especially, um, you know, talks about these different case studies that informed her work uh, and led to the development of these design principles, these eight kind of guidelines for sustaining a commons. And you know, she she was a collector of these case studies from around the world, and this is where that interdisciplinary curiosity comes in. You know, as a political scientist. You know, she just stayed in her lane. The research from political science wasn't that expansive, but she was able to connect with folks in anthropology and game theorists and economics and, you know, sociology, forestry, and bring all these case studies together and, you know, create teams um, and collaborate. So that was really important. One of the people that she collaborated with uh, was a guy named Jim Atchison. Uh, Dr. James Atchison was one of the first social scientists hired by the National Marine Fisheries Service, and later became a professor at the University of Maine. And he coined that term "lobster gangs." He wrote a book called *The Lobster Gangs of Maine*. And just to be clear, he said that he did not mean "gang" in a to refer to anything criminal. It's more like a bunch, you know, like a gang of lobster traps or this this gang of people from that particular harbor. And Atchison's work showed how these lobster harvesters uh, do not privatize their territory because you got to put your traps in a in a certain spot on the the ocean bottom, and if you put people put their traps too close together, they can get tangled up. So you do have to establish some customary territory that they defend against one another and against newcomers. Um, they also work together to defend the the Harbors territory against incursions from a neighboring harbor or an island. So this way of self-organization was a really powerful example that Ostrom drew upon, and um, you know really informed her work. And uh, she and Atchison uh, became lifelong friends and colleagues. And Atchison came to Indiana University uh, to the Ostrom Workshop. Uh, as a visiting scholar there to learn more about how to apply game theory and things like that to his work. Um, so it's really great example of that, that community that Ostrom, uh, established there in Indiana.
0: Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you referenced the, uh, the kind of principles that she was distilling down from all of her work. And she spent considerable time, as you've noted, you know, decades, um, trying to uncover what really makes these these instances of collective action on natural resource management and other topics, what what makes them possible. So can you talk us through some of those key lessons that she learned over the course of her career, kind of what she distilled down?
1: Yeah, she presents these eight design principles for managing a commons in uh, governing the commons. And she's, she's very clear that these are design principles. They're not rules. Um, They seem to generally work. They're not limited to eight. There might be more that people might discover. Um, But they include things like having physical and social boundaries that are clearly defined. So you know who has access to this resource and who does not. Um, Another rule is that there are locally tailored rules for defining access and consumption. Uh, So one size fits all approaches generally don't work. Individuals who are most affected by the rules can participate in rulemaking. It's very uh, again self-governance is a core principle of the the Bloomington School of Political Economy that she helped start. The fourth one is resource monitors are accountable to the resource users, and this really gets um, to questions of trust and reciprocity. That if um, if we're going to share this resource, we both need to have an a shared understanding of you know what how many lobsters are left on the harbor floor, or you know, how much water is being withdrawn from the groundwater aquifer. And uh, we have to be able to trust that information. The fifth one is that there are graduated penalties for rule breakers. You don't want to kick somebody out of the the harbor gang, for example, for their first offense. They might get a note. They might get snubbed at the grocery store or the bar for the first infraction but then there will be increasing penalties if they keep putting their traps in the wrong spot, for example. Uh, the sixth design principle is that conflict management institutions are accessible. Um, so you don't want to legalize this. You don't want to be you know, suing people in court. You want to be able to resolve those conflicts um, through an acceptable means, you know, kind of in the moment or in the short term. And then finally, or seventh is authorities recognize a right to self-organize that the you know, the law enforcement, the formal institutions kind of give the communities space to work out their resource conflicts and you know self-govern their resource. And then finally, for complex systems, they're organized into layers of nested governance. This is a concept that Ostrom called polycentricity. It's a lot like federalism in our national government where you have nested layers of decision making. Um and it allows for policy experimentation, having, you know, locally tailored solutions and things like that.
0: Can I ask you a little bit more about trust? Yes. I, I can certainly understand why that was very central to, um, to making any of these arrangements work. And so does Dr. Ostrom's research sort of reveal any of the ways that that trust is actually built or maintained uh, in a way that allows the, you know, the collective action to flourish?
1: Yes. she. This was a, a, a big topic for her. Very important. And she often used the phrase, nobody wants to be a sucker. Nobody wants to be taken advantage of, right? So if I'm going to, you know, hold back on my resource consumption, whether it's pumping groundwater, for example, or harvesting lobsters, if I'm going to hold back on that for the good of the resource, I have to be able to trust everyone else that they are going to do the same thing. And if we all trust each other, then, you know, we can have a sustainable harvest. But if that trust breaks down, well, I don't want to be a sucker. I'm not going to, you know, take a hit on my income while everyone else is just out there harvesting as many lobsters or pumping as much groundwater as they want, right? And then we're going to have this competitive race to extract. So trust is really central to all of this, trust and reciprocity.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. If I can pivot, and and perhaps the most important question I'm going to ask you all day then, is how can we apply her you know considerable insights to today's world? Right, where we are a little bit low on trust in a lot of different ways, but we face a lot of challenges that require um, that require us to manage the commons and in creative ways. And so, what are some you know what are some of the challenges out there now that would strongly benefit from these design principles that, um, that you've laid out and the, the, you know, sort of type of collective action that, that Dr. Ostrom knew was possible.
1: Once you start seeing these, these collective action situations, um, you know, in one spot, you see them popping up all over. Um, it's, it's really eye Uh, Ostrom spent most of her career studying local commons, things like fisheries, um, forests and irrigation communities but especially after she won the nobel prize she was she really started to shift her focus towards global commons things like climate change and if we've got this global commons does that follow the same you know set of eight design principles can we apply that it wasn't even clear if if this was if it made sense Um, so that's really what she was working on uh, at the end of her life she passed away in 2012 but she showed that the, the climate system does have many attributes of a commons, and she and her colleagues were skeptical of a single legally binding climate treaty. Um, you know, her emphasis on polycentric governance, this you know decentralized approach to decision making at multiple scales, she thought that such an approach could provide more locally tailored solutions and generate more creative policy exploration. Um, so this is what she was working on and writing about when she passed away in 2012. So she didn't live long enough to see the Paris Agreement um, emerge in 2015, but the Paris Agreement really does largely align with her decentralized, bottom-up approach to you know, managing the climate commons. So instead of a one-size-fits-all treaty, countries voluntarily make nationally determined contributions to reduce their emissions, and these commitments are ratcheted up over time. Um, and part of this was to avoid ratification in the. US Senate um, so that you know a legally binding treaty was was never quite on the table at that point. Um, but this bottom-up approach seems to be working so far and it seems to be our best hope for averting further climate catastrophes
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, there's a chapter in the book as well that talks about space and that is outer space <laughs> and um, and that representing another kind of extra global commons that we're eventually going to have to figure out how to navigate as a, you know, an international community. So anything that you'd want to share about that particular challenge?
1: Yes. You know, and Ostrom probably would not, space was not on her radar. (laughs) It might be kind of a pun, but um, this was not a topic that she was particularly interested in, but it's, it's one that shows how scholars at the Ostrom workshop and around the world are still applying her ideas to novel and emerging topics and space is really one of those it well we've got different types of space resources there's orbital space where our satellites operate that's a global commons it 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 is not legally defined as a global commons which the lawyers get very uh, touchy about but it it does fit our You know, the economist definition of a commons, that it's depletable, but it's also hard to exclude people from using. And if a satellite is operating in one orbit, another satellite can't be in the same spot at the same time. Otherwise, we're going to have a collision. So that resource needs to be carefully managed and coordinated or else we're going to have crashes, which do happen. And you get space junk. You know, debris that's just flying all over, and that can create cascading collisions and could ultimately, if it gets out of control, um, just destroy the entire um, orbital space in a it's called the Kessler syndrome after uh, a NASA scientist that came up with it. So that's an example of space as a global commons. But then there are other aspects like who owns the moon or who has access to use resources on the moon or on mineral laden asteroids. Um, And later this week on March 4th, a rocket body is expected to crash into the moon. Um, It's an old spent rocket body that uh, was launched by China, I think several years ago, and it's just been kind of drifting. And now it's been caught in the gravitational pull of the moon and it's going to crash on March 4th. So, Another timely example of of how space is an important resource, but if we're not careful, it can be depleted like other commons. And Ostrom's research is kind of pointing the way on how we can collaborate at a global level to manage this important resource.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's strange to think of space as sort of a, a limited resource, but in the context of the things that you're talking about, you know, orbits and... Um, and, and just competition for specific parts of space, Mm -hmm. then, you know, that becomes very critical. Do you think the, it seems to me that it'd be very difficult to build a small community that could focus on this. And this really cries out for sort of nested layers of, of management, or is there anything else you can sort of draw from her work about how management of space might look?
1: Yes. So this is a good example of, you know, this collaborative approach in the old days, you know, it was just the United States and the Soviet Union and then later China. Um, there were there really was a limited number of entities that were, you know, putting up satellites, for example. Um, but now that's been democratized and also privatized. So you have government actors, you have private sector actors, you have nonprofit NGOs that are involved. Um, so that really shows how, you know, th- the whole range of civil society institutions can be engaged to manage a resource and um, this is in contrast with the you know the wisdom of the 20th century the conventional wisdom was that well a commons will be ruined unless you either privatize it and let the market figure it out or have governments you know impose regulations on actors because the thinking was that you know the the resource using community could not come together uh, to govern themselves. And Ostrom said, that's, that's not true. There are thousands of cases, you know, that she documented where they had come together. And that is very much what we see in the outer space realm today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: That's a great encapsulation, I think, of, of her legacy in the field of economics, sort of you know, going against some conventional wisdom about what options are available for problem solving. Are there other ways in which you would characterize that legacy? You know, she wasn't an economist, as you've mentioned, and as you wrote about in the book, but she clearly did leave a significant legacy on the field. And, and as a bunch of resource economists here at RFF, of course, that's of particular interest to, to us and, and many of our listening audience. So how, how would you characterize that legacy?
1: Yeah, her work has, well, I should also say that she collaborated extensively with her husband, Vincent. They were really a team. Um, Vincent was the more theoretical political scientist and Eleanor was the more the practical one, Um, but they really did uh, work as a team together. And a lot of their research focused on institutions, which are kind of like the rules of the game that guide repetitive behavior. And that institutional approach really is that crossover between economics and policy. In political science, they call it political economy. In economics, they call it institutional economics. But that's where economics and policy meet in this defining the rules of the game. And they had the Ostroms and their colleagues at that Ostrom workshop had their own way of thinking about this. And it's been named the Bloomington School of Political Economy, um, to contrast it with the Rochester School and the Virginia School. So, you know, the people in Bloomington have their own approach to studying these problems, looking at it through an institutional lens. And the Ostrom's legacy really is in establishing this global community of scholars. They invite, you know, people from all around the world, Uh, to come and learn in Bloomington at Indiana University like I did when I was a visiting scholar on my uh, sabbatical. And they called their research center a workshop very intentionally. Vincent was an amateur woodworker, so he very much was in tune with um, himself being an apprentice to a master carpenter. And he learned the trade and practiced this and he wanted to take that same approach um to the intellectual community that they started uh in Indiana so they intentionally called it a workshop where you know young people or you know established professionals like myself can come and learn as an apprentice and learn the skills of their trade um so i think that is a that sense of community um an intentional community is really powerful and that's probably their biggest legacy.
0: Hmm. That's a great one. I think education is an exceptionally powerful legacy overall. And then, um, as you say, to, to couch it in the sense of, you know, anyone at any point in their career can still benefit from from learning from, from someone who's been thinking about this for a while. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful legacy and a, a great way to sort of wrap up our discussion of, of her life. So um, again, I want to recommend to our listeners, before we get to Eric's top of the stack, I will just say to remind listeners about the book, it's called The Uncommon Knowledge of Eleanor Ostrom, Essential Lessons for Collective Action. Uh, it's, it's very readable. It does have this wonderful mix of sort of intellectual content. You learn a lot about the issues uh, at play and this, the issues that she studied, but you also learn a lot about her, and, um, and it's great. So I really appreciated the chance to talk through it with you, Eric. And um, yeah, so quickly let's let's close the podcast with our regular feature, top of the stack. Top of the stack is a pretty flexible opportunity to recommend some more good content to our listeners. So certainly, you know, we'd welcome recommendations on this topic, but really anything that's on the top of your stack is sort of fair game. So uh, tell us what's on the top of your stack.
1: Sure, for readers who want to learn more about Eleanor Ostrom and commons research, there are two fantastic books that recently came out. One is the Cambridge Handbook on Commons Research Innovations, edited by uh, Sheila Foster and Christy Swinney. And I believe Sheila has been on some RFF uh, environmental justice podcasts and webinars recently, Um, so your listeners might be familiar with her work. And Jamie Lemke and Vlad Tarko have a book called Eleanor Ostrom and the Bloomington School, Building a New Approach to Policy and the Social Sciences. Both of these are geared towards more academic audiences, but they really get into, um, you know, be, beyond just the, the natural resource commons that I kind of focus on, because that's my background, they really get into why her work really resonates across, um, you know, the political science field. And then uh, I'll give you one last recommendation, and that is a book I'm reading right now called Fixing Niagara Falls, Environment, Energy, and Engineers at the World's Most Famous Waterfall. And this is really interesting. Um, I've been to Niagara Falls myself a bunch of times and had no idea on how engineered the whole system is, uh, water-diverted for power generation, Um different elements in place to spread the water out so nobody notices that up to 75% of the water can be diverted for power generation. Hmm. Really remarkable. And that's by Daniel McFarlane.
0: Great. All right. Well, those are some excellent recommendations, and we'll be sure to include links to those on the page along with the recording of our of our talk. So thank you again. It's been a pleasure, and um, hopefully talk to you again soon.
1: My pleasure, Kristen. Thanks a lot.
0: You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support Resources for the Future at rff.org support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.